Our friends at L. Keeley are incredibly dedicated to quality, ensuring that they do the right work the first time. Their founder and my friend, his name is Larry Keeley, has always said that quality and service never go out of style. After four decades of proving that truth in his construction business, their customer-centric approach is evident in every single project they touch. Learn more about their work and how they can impact you and your business at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Our guest today is a Harvard-trained and published neuroanatomist. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Stroke of Insight. Her TED Talk has been viewed more than 30 million times. Imagine that. And she's been chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. As irony would have it, though, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, at age 37, experienced a severe hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of her brain. Within hours, she lost the ability to walk, to talk, to read, to write, or to recall any of her past life. But in addition to passionately sharing her eight-year journey back to rebuild her brain, to recover her physical and emotional and her thinking abilities, Dr. Jill today is going to share her latest work called Whole Brain Living. It's a phenomenal conversation. And beyond the neuroscience today, you are going to experience how to work with your most powerful ally, your brain, and get a radical roadmap to deep inner peace, to ignite your joy, and to ultimately lead to a more fulfilling life going forward. My friends, I say it to you often, but this time I really do mean it. Buckle up, get ready for the ride going forward. Open up your favorite Live Inspired journal, uncrack and open up that pen. Get ready to take some notes, not only on Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor's journey, but ultimately on yours. So without further ado, join me in welcoming our newest friend, Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, I'm happy to be here with you. It's exciting. When you're not given an introduction, you know, before you speak at a commencement or in front of a large school or organization, or someone reads your bio on Wikipedia or the back of your book, but when you introduce yourself, how do you like to introduce yourself? That's a great question. I never get to introduce myself. I guess what I would say is I'm a whole human. I have had adversity. I have discovered pieces of myself that otherwise people would view as part of our unconscious selves and brought that journey back into a conscious way of communicating. So I was a brain scientist at Harvard. I had a major hemorrhage in the left half of my brain. I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. And at the same time, I gained the experience of blissful euphoria that is at the core of that right hemisphere. 
It took eight years for me to recover and I came back a better person than I went. I'm thrilled to be with you. I think our journeys have been very similar in the lessons learned and who we are as human beings. So I I think it's going to be a particularly deep conversation. The cool thing is I have bored our audience with the the O'Leary story enough times that today we get to stay focused, Jill, on your story. So (laughs) This time, this time, rather than rolling into Missouri, where I live, we're going to roll into Indiana. I know that your brother was a, a big influence in your life and one of the reasons why you chose the career path you chose. Would you talk about growing up first and just some of, some of the influences? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Indiana, which is a great place to grow up, I think. And my brother was only 18 months older than I. So everywhere we went, we went together. That's what we do with children, right? They all go together as a pack. And I noticed at a very young age, I'm going to say by five or six, that my brother and I were very different in how we experienced experiences, how we interpreted our experiences. So say, for example, we're playing by out in the front yard and the ball goes towards the street and our mom would scream, you know, like a raven lunatic. And my brother thought she was angry and I thought she was terrified. And so it was a difference in how we perceive these subtle uh, ways of communication. And eventually my brother, so I recognized we were different, but as children, you don't know that a brain, someone can have a brain that is not well. All you know is people are different. And then eventually my brother would be diagnosed with a brain disorder, schizophrenia. And so that kind of meant, okay, well then I'm probably the normal one, whatever normal is, because when you grow up inside of of a familial structure where someone is not normal, we're all skewed away from what is normal. And we all became a little eccentric. Mm. At what age was your brother diagnosed and, and how did that affect your family? He was not formally diagnosed until he was 30. Yet when he was 18, I kept saying to my mom, this boy, there's something not right here. And if it were me, I would want for you to get me help. And then by the time he was in his early 20s and in college, he really started showing symptoms. Uh, But boy, my parents, they were both academics and they were both in deep denial as that this is just his eccentricities. And it's like, no, you know, this is a a big, deep piece of of who I am as as a sister. And then ultimately, I grew up to study the brain because I wanted to understand how my brother's the closest thing to me that exists in the universe. What is different about his brain and his cells? and how it's working as compared to mine. So um, I was completely shaped by my brother's illness. So you go on to study the brain. What was the ultimate goal? Outside of just saying, I want to know why my brother is different than I, what were you really trying to do when you were studying the brain? Well, I was fascinated by reality. You know, what is reality and what is normal? But really, I was a gross anatomist. I studied neuroanatomy because there's really nothing left in gross anatomy for us to discover. Uh, Maybe a a little piece of tissue here or there. But uh, if you want to be an anatomist, you, you have to study neuro or histology tissue. And we pretty much know a lot about histology. So neuro is the great wide open field. 
Um, so I wanted to be a, an anatomist and I love gross anatomy. I love cadaver lab. And for some reason, I wanted to know that if somebody took a gun and shot me or took an, a knife and penetrated my body and made a wound, I wanted to know if it was going to kill me or not. Don't ask me why I wanted to know that. So I wanted to really have a visual of the anatomy, internal anatomy of a body so that I could look at a wound and say, that's life-threatening or that's not life-threatening. I don't know why I wanted to learn, know that, <laughs> but that's what that was my motivation. And so I really studied tissue types. I studied gross anatomy. I studied neuroanatomy, where are the nerves? I studied all of it. And so I ended up with that three-dimensional perception of the body. You are, and I have to look down at my notes to make sure I even say this right, cellular neuroanatomist. You are teaching, you are researching, you are writing at a university some would have heard of called Harvard. Uh, life is going splendidly yeah. well. And then December 10th, is it 1996? Yes. 25 years ago. T tell us why that date is so searing for you. <laughs> So I woke up on that morning and I all of a sudden had a brain disorder of my own. I had a blood vessel in the left hemisphere of my brain explode. And over the course of four hours, I watched my brain completely deteriorate in its ability to process all information. So by that afternoon, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. I became an infant in a woman's body. I had no recollection of myself at all. And I all but died that day. You all but died, but you I are all but died. wholly alive today. And you also said whole living, meaning your left and the right brain clearly are working well together today. Yes. Slow us down a little bit. For My wife is an occupational therapist who works with individuals who have experienced a stroke. And so yep. our family is pretty well educated, I guess, at this point on what might happen during a stroke episode. What happened for you? It took four hours. So uh, normally you have a high pressure system, an artery, and it tapers down, tapers down to a little arterial that lines up with a capillary bed, which means all the uh, red blood cells are gonna line up in a row. And then the low pressure system is the vein at the other end. The blood flows from the high pressure system to the no pressure system to a negative pressure system, which kind of then sucks via osmosis everything back into the vein to go back to the heart so that it can go through its process and get reoxygenated. And so that's normal processing. But in my brain, I had a major artery, kind of like a varicose vein, directly connected to a big old vein without a capillary network in between. So I went from a high pressure system to a, a negative pressure system and the, the vein could not take the pressure. Mm. And so it blew it off. And so it was kind of like, you know, a pipe breaks and the hose is now sending blood everywhere. And it sent, started sending it out into my brain cells and the tissue. And one of the things, interesting things about neurons, the primary cell of the brain, is that when blood comes in direct contact with a neuron, the primary cell, it's allergic to it and it will either kill it or it will encourage that neuron to break off all of its connections and curl up into a little ball to protect itself. 
So as a hemorrhage starts to grow inside of that neural tissue, some of that tissue, some of those neurons are going to die. And then whatever those cells were responsible for, that ability is gone. And then other cells have now curled up into a little ball like little wounded creatures. And then they, they have to wait until that blood gets cleared away. And so I did end up having uh, brain surgery two and a half weeks after the stroke. Jill, I, I've read that as the stroke is unfolding in real time, at first you don't know what's going on and, and you slowly begin to, it, all, it begins almost to become foggy for you. And then you recognize, my gosh, I'm having a stroke. And where most of us would be panic struck and you know hit our knees, start praying or call 911 immediately, you yeah. the very first reaction if you're if if I'm if I've read this right is wow like I'm having a stroke like this can you so believe cool. this? almost this is so cool just think about it first of all I'm a trained neuroanatomist I'm a scientist I'm a PhD and I'm not a medical doctor I'm not an MD so I don't have a lot of experience with stroke survivors, people who have had a stroke, uh, people who have died from stroke. I'm, I'm in a lab looking underneath a microscope at cells, brain cells. You know, I'm not dealing with real people. I'm not a practitioner. So when I woke up that morning and things were a little, what I call neurologically weird, I was just having some neurological weirdness. I didn't know I was having a stroke until I'm pretty much in this process. And then my right arm goes paralyzed. Well, I have studied stroke. I understand the warning signs of stroke. Paralysis is like the number one warning sign of stroke. So once I had paralysis in my right arm, it was like, then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. And then it was like, wow, this is so cool. You know, how many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out? You call a friend at work and there's a story behind that, but eventually you are raised to the hospital. You mentioned the stroke went on four or five hours. What was the procedure that ultimately allowed them to release some of that pressure and slowly begin bringing you back to full health? I was very fortunate in that for some reason, they decided to give me steroids, which are anti-inflammatory in order to calm the bleed. That morning, it was about the size of a fist. I mean, it was a big bleed. They could stop the bleeding. So they, they waited two and a half weeks before they gave me a craniotomy to remove at that point, a blood clot that had kind of dried up to about the size of a golf ball. And once they took that pressure off my brain, then it was just kind of like, well, now all we can do is wait and see. But I was very blessed that my, my neurologist said, Jill, it's going to be two years before we know anything. Mm-hmm. Now, you will start getting more and more back early on, but the learning of the brain never stops. So don't give up. So they said, your job now is to go recover your brain. I just knew it was my job to go recover. And I kept the hope and I kept the faith because I kept getting better. And I kept getting better for eight years. How are you different now than you were at age 37, the morning of the 10th of December, when, when this stroke began to take place in your brain? 
Yeah, I'm very different at the level of my values. What do I value? I value that I exist at all. I value my life. My left brain self before was really more about me, the individual climbing the Harvard ladder. Mm -hmm. And it was about my achievement and it was about uh, material achievement as well as academic achievement and me and mine and more of, of that as the individual. But what I gained in the absence of Jill Bolte-Taylor, who essentially died that day, in the absence of her, I became a part of a collective whole. I became a piece of humanity. Uh, I, I shifted very differently into to what I valued at the core of who I am and how I spend my time. And um, you know, now I'm more in, in of service too. How do I bring the best piece of who I am and my experience? And how do I use that to better bring the best part of me to help others hook into the best part of who they are? And I know that part of your journey is the same. Jill, you, you said a lot there, and I, I want to kind of go through it almost item by item as I, as I heard it. One is that your life is radically different. And for the listeners who may not understand the negative effect of the stroke, how it affected your life in the early stages, you lost a lot. And when you lost a lot, it also, if you can see the other side of the math equation, you also gained a lot, actually. So right. what did you lose in those early days? And what were you gaining as a result of that loss? Well, I lost the ability to walk and talk and read and write. I lost all recollection of my life. I fell off the Harvard ladder with a big thud. So essentially the first 30 years of my achievement was evaporated. Everything that goes with that, um, that the network that I had, the drive that I had, the research that I was doing, I lost a world. I lost a part of who I was. And she was a great part. I mean, she was a high achiever and she was, uh, there was a lot of meaning in my life because I was a major advocate, national advocate for the mentally ill. So uh, there was meaning in my life in being able to be of service to people like my brother. I did lose a lot. At the same time, what did I gain was I gained the value of the present moment. Mm -hmm. I gained knowing that I am okay, whatever my form. I'm better than okay, I'm alive. And that this life is this incredibly precious gift that you know is finite in the amount of time that I get to be in this form in order to be able to be with others. And, and so I'm good with life or no life. I'm good with climbing a ladder or not climbing a ladder, but I don't establish the value of me based on the external anymore. If I have a left brain that allows me to know I'm an individual, hey, wow, that's a perk, you know? Uh, if I have the ability to have language, wow, that's communication with others. I gained a real, a real awareness of the essence of what I am as a living being and the gift of that. And when we celebrate life at that level and we attract others who also have that, get, understand that value, then it's like, wow, that, that to me is really beautiful. And that's why I'm excited about you because you've been on that same journey. There's loss, but in it's not a matter of 
of what have we lost? It's a matter of what have we gained? Mm. And in the absence of that very busy left brain that says, well, it has to look like this. It has to sound like that. It has to be this in order for it to be good or acceptable. It's like, mm, no, I don't buy into that anymore. I know it's good. You spoke at one point in your career with a bunch of brilliant, for the most part, left-leaning, not just uh, politically, I mean left-brained, leaning individuals at a little organization called TED. Before everyone in the world had heard of TED, you were one of its earliest speakers and you were the very first individual to go completely viral. You may not know this because you don't have a whole lot of ego, but more than 30 million people now have watched this TED talk of you sharing the experiences of this stroke, what you lost, but also what you gained. Yeah. And in that talk, two things really blew, well, three things really blew me away. One is you received this roaring standing ovation. That's very rare in that room to get everyone on their feet afterwards celebrating not only your life, but I think their life. I thought yeah. that was really cool. Secondly, was how brilliant your ideas were and they were ideas worth spreading. But what I want to ask you about actually is a third piece. You shared the entire time with this childlike joyfulness of euphoria. And it's a word you've used twice. That, that sense of uh, freedom and non-judgmentalness and just pleasure and joy for simply being alive and having something to say that might be worth hearing, maybe, maybe not. Here's what I got to say. Right. Was that always part of your DNA or was it the stroke that took away who you were and allowed you to become this new version of yourself? You know, that's a, I love that question because I was actually a very joyful, happy little girl. And I did not become an academic left brain until I was a sophomore in college. And my poor mother wondered if I was ever going to become scholastic because she was a PhD in mathematics, you know? And it was like, girl, are you ever gonna, is your brain ever gonna wake up? And it was like, well, you know, when your dad's a PhD and your mom's a PhD, okay, you've seen PhD is obtainable, but you cannot pick anything that they know anything about because otherwise you're never the master, right? You're never the expert. You're always second in line to the parental unit. So no, I, I didn't really have that as a goal. And then I fell in love with anatomy. And then for some weird reason, I wanted to know if that knife went through me right here at this angle, am I going to live or die? And that was it for me. That was how my left brain turned on. And, and then I became scholastic. And then I started you know, climbing the, the ladder and, and ended up at Harvard doing a postdoc and got a job there at the brain bank. And I was doing research and teaching and I was just living this best life because it was fantastic. And then boom, in one morning, I can't walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life, but I'm okay because I had a really healthy right brain before I ever became any of that stuff. So that wasn't who I really was. It was a part of who I could express myself to be, but I had been very artistic and musical and uh, physically active and an athlete. So I was really fine. The word euphoria, part yeah. of it a sense of peace and a sense yeah. of joyfulness yeah. and maybe a sense of appreciation for the life that you have and the life yeah. that you have. That sense of wonder 
you know, I've heard you talk about cells and details that I don't even understand, but you're, you're so passionate, like this, this, and they connect and my God, we're part of this and, and you have this in your life. And so share with us, doctor, a little bit of the passion for the miracle of life. People say, you know, there's so much conversation about what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? So to me, the meaning of life, whether you are 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses, beautiful cells packed together as a human being, or you are a single cell, a little microbe, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of that single cell? The single cell is nothing other than a semi-permeable membrane that separates something, a world inside from a world outside of itself. And that membrane is stippled with receptors so that some things can come into that cell and then I can respond to whatever is coming into that cell. So whether I'm a single-celled organism or I'm the life force power of 50 trillion, and molecular geniuses, to me, the meaning of life is to stimulate and to be stimulated by. We have these two beautiful hemispheres inside of our head, and one does it by going expansive and open and collective whole in the present moment, and then the other hemisphere says, well, I'm a me, I'm an individual, I'm separate from that, and I can go detail, detail, and more detail about detail, so that we end up with these two very different ways of interacting with one another, and how can you not find that as self-stimulating? I mean, just as being a living being, we're this phenomenal, and that's what we are at the core of who we are, of who we are. This is what we are. And if we have forgotten to have this wonder or this awe or this, this, oh my gosh, I'm alive at all, then then I think it's important that people remember that. You wrote a book 13-ish years ago now called My Stroke of Insight. It was on the New York Times bestselling list for 63 weeks. So, but you've got a new one out and you hinted at it a moment ago where you talked more about the hemispheres and the right. four characters right. and really how to, how to choose that all. Yeah. Not just yeah. like, you know, maybe one day you'll get burned and you'll realize what matters or one day you'll have a stroke and God willing, you'll survive it and bounce forward and oh, what a gift that would be. But how do you operate in the world you have right now and then choose that sense of wonder, that sense of awe? So that's where this new book, Whole Brain Living, shows up. I, I want you to talk about the four characters that make up our brain. So when you think about the brain, what's the difference between a human and other mammals is that we have this thinking tissue added on top called the neocortex, the new cortex. But below that in each of the hemispheres is limbic tissue. And this, this limbic tissue is the, the emotional system. So we have two emotional groups of cells, one in each hemisphere, and two thinking groups of cells, one in each hemisphere. So the biggest difference in my understanding uh, based on my experience is that the right hemisphere is all about right here, right now. It's all about right here. There's no past, there's no future. And the right here, right now is a perfect moment. That's why this experience of euphoria exists in the present because you don't have the left brain that comes in and takes that big picture and starts defining it as what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, how do I fit in, what's the social norm? No, the right here, right now is just the right here, right now. And we can bring our minds into the present moment 
moment. But then in the left brain, all of a sudden now it's not the present moment. It has a past and it has a future. It has methodical thinking. It has linearity. So A happens, then B happens, then C happens. I have a past, then I have a present, and then I have a future. But it's also then the emotions of the past, present, and future. And it is the thinking cognition of the past, present, and future. And then the other big difference is it's about me. My left brain is all about me. My right brain doesn't have that perception of me, the individual. So the left brain is about me and it has linearity of time and the right brain doesn't have me and it has simply the present moment. So as we look at these groups of cells, the emotional tissue versus the thinking tissue they are balls of cells. Every ability we have is because we have these cells that perform a function. And so groups of cells intra-connect with one another so that they end up with specific subsets of skill sets. Each of those skill sets then ends up with some kind of a character profile or a personality. So the title of the book is Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the four characters that drive our life. So I look at the the two hemispheres and we have character one and two. Character one in the left brain is the left thinking tissue. It is all about me, the individual, in relationship to the social norms of the external world. It likes to control people, places, and things. It got us here on Zoom together on time. It, it, it is, likes to be the boss. It's that A type. It likes to make uh, lists. It gets things done. John, do you know that part of yourself? I, I do. And I'm familiar with it internally. I'm also familiar with the, the personality type. Yes. So it's the character one is that, that p- part of who we are. And all of those skill sets is a personality. And then we also have the character two, which is the pain from my past. It's about me, the individual. It's the pain from my past. It's all the trauma I've ever experienced. It's also my happiness, but it's my happiness based on the consequences of what's happening in the external. So it's circumstantial. So let's say you and I are going to uh, go on a picnic. Well, we're really happy if the sun is out and we can go have a picnic, but we're not happy in that little character too if because of the circumstances it's raining out now we can't go have a picnic right so happiness becomes a circumstantial response of that character too it's also where our addictions are because deep inside of that tissue is our craving tissue and if i'm craving an addiction then i'm fueling that addiction based on that character two personality. But the beauty of that character two is that is a consciousness that does not exist in the present moment. And what those cells were willing to do is to take the experience of the present moment coming up through that reptilian brainstem and say, I, have I ever had this experience before in my past so that in order to alarm, alarm, alert, alert, protect myself with my sympathetic nervous system, give me a reason to push away from what's in the present moment, because I recognize it as a dangerous threat from my past. Mm -hmm. So it is so important, but at the same time, it's a part of us that we need to know and we need to love. 
are these generalization archetypes, are these, or are these, no, John, specifically within the brain, this is where some of this function takes place. This is where the ego lives. And John, as we get ready to move now to the right side, it, it's a totally part of the brain. That's exactly right. You are absolutely, these are anatomical groups of cells. And from their function, if you have a stroke, like I had a stroke and I it was right in there. So it wiped out the character one and the character two. So what I lost with my stroke was I lost me, the individual, my ego, the group of cells that define the boundaries of where I begin and end in that character one, as well as the language of me, I, I am, I am Jill Bolte Taylor. And these are all the details of my life. I lost all that. And then I also lost character two, which was all my pain from my past. So I can remember now, now that I have recovered the, the many of the skill sets of those characters one and two, character one has come back online and I can, I can remember things from my past, but I no longer feel the pain from my past or any of the positive emotions from my past, even though I can remember that those things happened. Like when I graduated with my PhD, I was filled with pride. It was one of the most proud moments of my life. Oh my God, I finished that thing, right? And, uh, and I just, I remember the feeling that I had because I had two very proud parents as well. And, uh, but I remember feeling pride, but I can't go back and feel that pride so that group of cells essentially got rebooted because now I can look back on, you know, how did I feel when I finished writing the first book or even this book? I remember the sense of pride that I felt and I can refeel that. So, so it's interesting, but these are, this is the anatomy of the brain. And this is why we have these four archetypes that you just mentioned, because they are anatomically based on the cells in our brain. And if we experience some kind of trauma to those cells, we don't just lose. I mean, imagine if you lost the cells in your brain that knew how to categorize and organize data and information in the external world, then that character part of you that it thrives in doing that would go offline it would disappear the other parts of your brain don't generally take over those abilities if you're young you may be able to do some of that especially if you have the trauma pre-puberty but otherwise that's why what your your wife is about in occupational therapy in retraining people is trying to not just wake up uh, or, or create, help create um, new abilities in the brain, but to wake up perhaps some of those cells that have cut off their connections and gone to sleep and to reinvite them back into the bigger construct of the neural network that they originally had. And once they do, then they would regain those specific abilities. Thank you. And, and there's a lot here on the, on the four different characters that I think are important to first understand, secondly, understand that you're not saying it's this or that it's, it's yes. And we oh, want all yes four of these guys playing together. So before I ask questions, Ron, how do we do this? How do we silence a little bit of the voices from one and two or right. elevate sometimes the voices of three and four or sometimes squash them a little bit and remind them, Hey, hey time to go to work, boys, time to go to work. Right. Uh, what what are characters three and four? So character three is uh, what I what I refer to as the emotion 
of the right hemisphere, the limbic cells, the amygdala and hippocampi and, and anterior cingulate gyri. One of the reasons why I realized how to communicate this was people in general now, we talk about the amygdala and the hippocampi, but the fact of the matter is we have two amygdala and two hippocampi and two anterior cingulate gyri, which means I have two alarm, alarm, alert, alert systems. The left brain, that character two that I just talked about, but in the right hemisphere, we have the same limbic structures, but of the present moment. Mm -hmm. And this is a group of cells that is all about the experience. What does it feel like to just sit in my chair with my dog on my lap? She's warm. What does it feel like the temperature of the air against my face? What does it feel like when I dive into the water and I feel the pressure of the water against my body and I feel the temperature of that water? What does it feel like when I say, John, let's go explore. Let's go play. There's a snake over there. Let's go chase it. It's an adrenaline junkie. It likes the experience of the present moment. So that's the character three. And it's an impetus toward. It's action-oriented. So the left hemisphere, that character two, is looking for a reason to push away and say no and shut down and become more constricted and smaller and safer. The right hemisphere, it's just all over the place. It's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go do that. So it likes to explore, and it doesn't have that box of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. So if it wants to color, it's got the left brain saying, well, you got to color inside of the lines and the right brain's going, what lines? I don't even see the lines, right? It's like, I just want to do and be, and it be this explosive energy in the world because, oh my gosh, I'm alive. And, 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 and. so it's creative, it's open, it's innovative, and it's community-based because I, it doesn't detect that I'm an individual separate from you. It's like your big energy ball. I'm an ener energy ball. Let's go take our energy ball and have some fun, which also means it's not always going to make the best decisions. Yeah, I have, th I have three boys living over here right now. Oh, so, my uh, land. Character three you know is something I'm, I'm extraordinarily about. familiar with and a, and a golden retriever to boot. So we, we, we know this archetype. And then character four. Character four is the thinking portion tissue of that neocortex of that right brain. And this part of us does not have me the individual. It has me as the energy and the life force of all that is. There is no boundary between any of the atoms and molecules that exist anywhere. So what that means is we are each literally as big as the universe. We are the energy. We are atoms and molecules in space. Where you are and where I am, there's only space between us, but we are influencing one another. And at the core of this is this ultimate sense of sweet euphoria and love. Oh my gosh, I exist at all. And in that awe and in that wonder comes this sense of, of whatever is, is. And we're all connected and you're a part of I of me. So of course I'm gonna I'm gonna support you and I'm gonna nurture you and I'm gonna I'm gonna serve you in any way that I possibly can so that you can advance as your best self in the world too. So it becomes the collective whole, it becomes the consciousness of all of us as humanity in relationship to this beautiful planet. And this is the place that we pray to get to. This is the consciousness that is in 
infused in every cell of our body. This is the consciousness of we are at one with all that is because we are all a part of the one, but we're not a part of the one, like take a whole bunch of us and put us together in a pack and we all become one. No, we blend into one another and we become one. We are one energy. And then this left brain comes in and starts taking that apart into details and differentiation so that we have different cells that have different functions so that we can have this incredible diversity. And a part of my brain can differentiate me, the individual separate from you. So in whole brain living, we're actually taking this big, massive, beautiful collection of neurons and differentiating these different groups of cells into these four very specific groups of cells resulting in very four very specific and predictable and shared personalities. We are all connected in one way or another, and you mentioned it as a fact, but now I'll ask a follow-up question on it. You said, John, we are all connected, you and I, and we're having this experience right now. And so my question is, do you believe that truly and why? Are we truly connected, you and I? If we wipe out this tiny little group of cells in the left parietal region of our brain that defines the boundaries of where we begin and end, then we have zero perception of ourselves as separate. We are not separate. We are one energy. There's only one energy and we are one big ball of energy, but because we have to become functional individuals in order to become functional human beings in the external world, then I have to have an identity. If we were all just one blob of consciousness, we would be absolutely completely non-functional. We have to have individuation in order to become established as individuals, in order to take the power of what we are a part of and to be able to create in the external world structure and form. But the structure and the form is is a byproduct of the way these cells in our brains process information. I think what I'm hearing you say a lot in clear, Jill, is three and four is where an awful lot of the fun stuff happens. That's where we connect. That's where we feel euphoria. That's where there's creativity and expansiveness and connectedness to the universe, to God, love, uh, interconnectedness, lack of ego, a lot of great stuff. And you need also one and two. You need form. You need order. You need a little bit of ego to, to get us out of the couch and moving forward into life. But in saying all of that, it seems like the systems we have as society lean heavily toward one and two. That whether it's finance and capitalism, university systems, education systems, family, hierarchy, all this stuff, all of that stuff really is one and two. So how do we, how do we blend this life? So it's not only a whole brain, one person, but a whole collection of individuals doing life well together. Exactly. Well, if we're going to be functional as a mass, we have to have some structure. And that's the point of whole brain living. I mean, there's no point in having a right brain and not using it. And there's no point in having a left brain and not using it. But the question for me, and I think this goes right back to the beginning of our conversation, is what is the value from which we stem our action? And we have skewed as a society in the Western world, Western culture, to left brain dominance. 
So it becomes about me. It becomes about mine. It becomes about me versus you. It's not an and, it's a me versus you. It's a we versus they mentality. And in that, we also establish a hierarchical structure. And this is how academia is. This is how our government is. This is how we have created a form within which we as a whole brain can then function. So we have skewed ourselves to the value structure of the left brain, not just in the external world and how we value what is right, what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, because we have to have, we have, if we're going to differentiate, if we're going to be functional human beings, we have to have that level of differentiation. But then it boils down to what is the value of the cells of the left brain? If all I have is the left brain, it becomes about me and mine and you're different and you're separate. And if you're different from me. It can be your skin is a different color than mine. It can be your religion is different from mine. And so that little two comes online and it says, no, I don't feel safe in that because that doesn't feel familiar. And I feel safe in that character too, in what is mine, in what is familiar. But the consciousness of the right hemisphere doesn't separate. It looks at the collective and it says we are one life and it is actually in our differences and in our differentiation that we have become greater as humanity because we have more information because of our differences. So we can become this one united consciousness of humanity in all of its unique differences. But if the left brain does not value those differences and instead it pushes away then we end up in the world that we're currently living in well i think a whole lot of folks on the dawn of the internet had the belief that it would actually be the thing that united the world as one like completely united and what it seems to have done lately in particular is actually yeah information travels more rapidly but it, it may serve to disconnect us even greater if that's what the left brain is doing with it, I will agree with that. But also I'm going to say, but what is the right brain doing with it? And what the right brain is doing, it is, it is finding like-minded tribes, groups of people who really are looking at, at how do I take my light and bring my light to you so that you can bring your light into the world as well. And we're about really lighting each other's fires instead of burning each other down. Right. And, okay. and you know, it's probably gonna end up about 50-50 based on the population of us who would be more right brain dominant versus those of us who are more left brain dominant. And that's why at this point, whole brain living is so important because boy, self-destruction destruction of humanity is always, you know, right there at the finger press of a few left brain fingers. And all we can do is hope that, boy, they never cross that line. And somehow or another, the humanitarian piece of who we are always says, okay, there's possibility. I'm curious, creative ideas, new possibility, hope. So Jill, I do have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. And yet, right before we get to those seven, I'm curious for the individual out there who right now their brain is telling them they are lonely or they should feel more anxiety or they should feel more sadness for the misery of the world, including their own. And all these emotions that we humans feel as we journey through the day, anger and resentment and sadness and all this stuff. 
how can we acknowledge what has happened, what is, and also pivot into, okay, I'm going to exhale that and take the next right step forward. So I always go right back to the cells. You know, every ability we have is because we have cells that are performing that function. I can be anger, angry because I have circuits inside of my brain made up of cells that is my anger circuit. So when I'm angry, I'm actually running my anger circuitry. When I feel grief, grief, deep grief that is totally enveloping, it takes me, it takes me to the floor. I weep. It is, it just is so powerful and so beautiful. It is so beautiful beautiful. Our grief and our anger and our sadness and our joy and all of these beautiful emotions that we're capable are cells in circuit that we are capable of running. I always say to my, my, my people, I don't care if you're miserable as long as you remember to enjoy it. Enjoy your misery. Enjoy your sadness. Allow it to be. It's a group of cells and cells run in circuit. And from the moment we think a thought, we stimulate one of those emotional circuits. And then we have a physiological response, our sadness. It takes us to our knees and it flushes out of us, takes less than 90 seconds. These are cells in circuit, having reflexive types of circuits running inside of our brain. And the thing about circuits is that the more we run a circuit, the more time I spend worrying, the more strong that worry circuit becomes. So it takes less effort or less energy for me to actually have that circuit run. And so this is how we establish uh, a habitual emotional circuitry and habitual thinking circuitry. So pay attention to what you're feeling. Pay attention to what you're thinking. Pay attention to the cycle of that circuit. Let yourself have sadness. Celebrate that you're capable of feeling sad and lonely. Oh my God. It's one of the blessings and experiences of being alive, but it's still just a group of cells running in circuit. And you can choose to rerun that circuit over and over and over again, but pay attention to what are you thinking that's re-stimulating that circuit that is rerunning that physiological response so that I'm constantly feeling devastation. Pay attention to what are the circuits in your brain that you are running habitually. And then pay, then think about, okay, what other circuits might I want to create as mental and emotional habits? Because they're in there too. And I have the power to choose moment by moment, which of these circuits I want to run and how much I'm going to run them. So today I, I went to the funeral of a dear friend of mine's father. And he's been grieving rightly so for the last week, and he'll be grieving long beyond, of course, the loss of his hero and, and one of his best friends and his role model in life. When he is grieving this loss, and you're saying, enjoy that, enjoy that experience, recognize like, gosh, it's so human, like that, that your cells are doing something oh, actually remarkable human. right there. Help, help me and help him and help our other listeners understand what that means to enjoy that and understand eventually in time as you choose, you can re reroute this so that you can fire up different circuitry. The beauty of these deep emotions, my, my, if I had to say, what is my favorite emotion? I would say grief because grief takes all of us. It's here. I, 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 it takes me, I take it. It takes me to my knees. I just, the wholeness of me 
feels like something is being ripped from me. And the only way that I can experience this is if I am alive. And one of the gifts of my ability to have this life and to have a rich and deep life or these emotions and its cells, and these are, I am wired for grief. And if I allow the grief to take me and take me completely, it will naturally pass through me probably within that 90 second wave. Now I can rethink the loss of my mother or he can rethink the loss of his father and his whole soul will have that gut wrench again, but it will happen in waves. And the thing about deep, deep, deep emotions is the more you allow something like grief to take you, then it's like a pipe that allows you, it's a wave that comes over you and flushes beyond you, comes over you and flushes beyond you. And when you allow yourself to truly feel that connection, I am feeling at this lowest despair because I loved, I loved, I loved, and now I can't see that love. I can't see it in the form that it was, and it has been taken from me, but it is not taken from me. My love continues, and the grief is one of the ways of I reach deep into my love, and I just surrender there. And in that moment, there is this true connection of that love of the love that was and the love that will always be. It's a beautiful, beautiful experience. And then with time, sadly and fortunately, those waves become further and further apart. Mm. Yeah, the, the shortest verse and my favorite verse from, from New Testament scriptures, he wept. And it's, it's, it's this, in, in my faith view, God walking among us, losing a friend, seeing the grief all around him, looking toward this grave and weeping, this wildly human emotion uh, that even, even the most perfect among us will experience in our lifetime. And the so. gift of what that is to feel to that depth of connection with another and with self and mm -hmm. with that which is beyond us. I mean, it's beautiful. Life is this beautiful, beautiful gift. And, and those deep emotions are, are just some of the best, most delicious experiences. Jill, thank you for reminding us that sometimes the most painful experiences also are the most delicious because they remind us of what we had and how alive we still are. And, and, and uh, we do have seven questions that tether every one of our guests together. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. So we're going to live inspired together as we wrap up strong. The first okay. is for an extraordinarily well-read individual. Jill, what is the most impactful or influential book you've ever read? I listened to probably four or five books a week. The biggest one that influenced me growing up was a great book called Please Understand Me hmm. by two authors, Kiersey and Bates. And that book was about uh, Myers-Briggs, personality temperaments. 
And it was the first book in my life that helped me differentiate who am I? Who am I? And really helped me understand that I am not just this, but I am all of this. Mm -hmm. And although I disagreed with the fact that it typed me as one character, uh, from there, because it typed me as one character and I knew I had at least two, I had one that was going to be an ex, uh, a left brain scientist climbing a ladder, but I was also an entertainer and a goofball, and they were the exact opposite temperament types. Uh, but for me, that book really made a huge, 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 I called it my Bible. It, it really helped me understand myself in relationship to myself and in relationship to others. Mm. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl before the Harvard ladder, before life took root, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Play, joy, play, joy. If it's not fun, why are you doing it? If the author of Whole Brain Living, if her house caught fire or her riverboat where she sometimes lives caught fire and all living things, your pets, your friends are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, a physical item. What one thing would you come racing back outside with, Jill? My computer, because you just said all the important things, right? Uh, I have a beautiful portrait of my mother, but it's in my computer as is all the other things, like all those pictures, those memories on your wall. Yeah, I, it, I hate to say it, but it probably would be the computer. But you, you said after all those really important things were gone. You got, they're out safe. So you're watching yeah. it burn. You got the computer in your hand. Perfect. What about yeah. this? If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Indiana afternoon and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you want to be sitting under that beautiful sun with? I, I would just sit with an unknown. I love people. I don't care really who that person is, but I'd probably gravitate to someone who needed some love. What's the best advice your mother or some teacher or a friend or life has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? Don't believe everything your brain says to you. What advice would you whisper into the ears of a 20-year-old girl looking toward Harvard? Everything's going to be okay. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Mm. How would you like your one sentence to read? There's a saying, and I, I don't have it exactly, but this is the point. I want to skid in to home base, completely used up, completely scarred up, completely messed up, because I really lived as I ran the bases of life. I know exactly what you're referencing, and you got it just about pitch perfect. So thank you for not only that beautiful quote, but thank you for actually modeling it already. You had this experience at age 37 that woke you up and uh, now you've spent the rest of your days, now 25 years into it, waking the rest of us up. We're grateful for it. Thank you. That is Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I am John O'Leary and this is our collective day. Let's choose to live inspired. Well, my friends, there's so much from the conversation that moved me during the time with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. I, I found it shocking how she kept sharing all the things she gained during that period of time of profound loss. 
she was referring specifically to that stroke. But I was, as I was listening to her going through all she had lost and then also during that time, all she had gained, I thought about us and our journey and those of us right now feeling like we are struggling with something physically or financially or relationally or with a global pandemic or whatever we're facing right now in our own lives. That during this period of loss, the challenge I ask of myself and I invite us to consider for ourselves is this. What are we learning during this time? What are we gaining during this time? What are we growing into in order that we might become the best versions of ourselves? And rather than waiting for it, why not start today? That was something that moved me. Another piece was the importance of perspective on our emotions. This decision that she said to enjoy the emotions, which normally we think of meaning to enjoy the positive emotions. But Jill reminded us of the gift and the opportunity we have each day to enjoy all of the emotions, even the emotion of grief and loss and desire for something that currently we do not have in our life, that these emotions too can be emotions to be celebrated, to sit with and to recognize that this is not the end of the story and the best is yet to come. My friends, as we think about what remains ahead of us, as we think about the future that remains unwritten but remains possible for us to live into Together, I want to remind you that this is National Mentorship Month, and one of the most impactful organizations and relationships I've ever personally been involved with is with Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Nearly 19 years ago, my wife Beth and I were seeking to make a difference in our community, so we reached out to Big Brothers Big Sisters. We became bigs. We found ourselves nervously waiting who our little would be. We were seated in a room when a little boy walked in with big, brilliant, saucer brown eyes that exuded light and a smile to boot. His name was Travian House. We became his big, but as a relationship unfolded over the course of, well, now 19 years of friendship, he became our big. He taught us about resilience, and he taught us about faithfulness. He taught us about love. He taught us about being non-judgmental. He taught us about embracing the gift of each day. Travion has been a blessing to us. We thank Big Brothers Big Sisters for that. We subsequently have graduated out of that program because Travion graduated, but longing to still make a difference, we became bigs again. Now we're matched up with this brilliant little young man here in St. Louis named Calvary, who reminds us again of resiliency and courage and faithfulness and acceptance, and he always has a smile on his face and on his eyes. So if ever you're looking to become involved in a place where you can make a difference, well, during National Mentorship Month, why wait? I encourage you, whether you are tuning in in St. Louis, Missouri, where I record these episodes from, anywhere in the United States or around the world, check out your Big Brother, Big Sisters organization and reach out. Make a difference today. And if you want to learn more about my relationship with my first little let me strongly encourage you to tune in to one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded because I recorded it with my little. His name is Travion House, and you can learn more about Travion at episode 260. So if you want to learn more about my relationship with my little, who became in time my mentor, check it out. It's at episode 260. So my friends, thank you for tuning in to our Live Inspired podcast for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live Inspired. I want you to think 
about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting KeeleyCompanies.com.